Sales is a numbers game. It's all about optimizing conversion rates at different points in the buyer's journey. Get the couple to inquire, then to respond to your inquiry, then to like you on the discovery call, read your proposal, and finally send in a contract and deposit. You'll guide a potential buyer through dozens of micro-commitments throughout the sales process, unless you blow it, unless you make it hard for them to move forward, unless you scare them from making that crucial next step. That's exactly what I'm talking about on today's podcast of Own Your Business, where I'm going to dive into sales tactics that might work some of the time, but often backfire and blow up the potential for the couple to book your services. Today, in this episode, we're going to talk about scarcity, which is that double-edged sword that kills more deals than it converts. The fine line between pre-qualifying and over-qualifying. Why too many pros confuse elusive with exclusive. And what item on your email signature is costing you thousands in lost sales. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Now, here's something you might not know about me and will certainly surprise you. I graduated high school without reading a single book, all the way from start to finish. I never completed one. How did I make it through? I read Cliff Notes. I don't even know if those still exist, but... Boy, they were my savior back then. Those little yellow and black booklets. I read those from start to finish. And I watched movies. If there was a movie about the book, I just watched the movie. I figured I'd get 80 to 90% of what I needed from it. I remember watching things like Huck Finn late at night. I mean, and it was a struggle sometimes to get through even those. Sometimes I wouldn't even watch the whole movie. And I would read whatever chapters I felt like I needed to pass the class. I'd skim. Other things interested me at that time. I mean, it was high school. I was in sports. I was a bit of a jock. I loved hanging out with friends. And there was stuff that I did with my friends that I can't really talk about publicly because my dad might be listening to this particular episode of the podcast. I still managed to graduate to the top of my class and get into a great school. I was the poster boy for fake it till you make it. Until I hit my freshman year of college. And it all went downhill fast. I got two F's my first year, my first semester. One of them, I woke up late for a midterm and failed that class. My roomie, Jake, loved that guy. But he oftentimes turned the alarm off on his side of the room and didn't remember to wake me up. A second class I failed because I tried to pull a fast one on my poli-sci professor. He saw right through my excuse. I ended up getting an F in that one. I was on academic probation. My scholarships were at risk. It was not a good situation. I was clearly burned out. So I took a belated gap year to get my act together and push reset on my life. It was one of those sliding door moments where I went through one door instead of another and everything changed because of it. Now here's the irony. I fell deeply in love with learning while I was away from school. I had to get out of that environment. In that gap year, 
a buddy of mine, Gwen, he asked me if I wanted to go to Europe. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And then he said, do you want to go on a bicycle? And I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Let's do that. So we planned this epic road trip from London to Wales and then back to London. Take the ferry over to Amsterdam and bike down through Paris to Marseille along the Rivieras into Florence and then all the way down to Rome. And while we were planning on this, we had to make money to be able to afford the bike, the gear, and all the money that we were going to spend over there. So I had to save all of my money and work almost every waking hour. But when I had days off or the evenings, I spent my time reading. I wanted to learn about where I was going. I wanted to learn all about the history and read some of the authors who wrote their best books over in Paris in the 1920s. Plus, when I was in Europe on my bike, when I finally got there, there wasn't a lot to do because we didn't have a lot of money to go out at night. It was really kind of go to the tent and read the book or journal. I had plenty of time to spend going through. I read two, three books a week for nearly a year. Again, ironically, I returned to college after that gap year and I changed my major to English and I added history on my junior year. That love of learning, it never left me. I realized that I needed two things. That's what being out of school taught me. I needed a topic that I loved and no one telling me that I had to do it. Back in 2010, nearly 10 years after I graduated college, I fell in love with a new area to dive into. It wasn't the classics. It wasn't medieval history. It was buyer psychology. I was fascinated. Maybe it was because I was the child of two therapists. I don't know. But I love to think about what was going through people's minds when they made decisions. I remember I picked up a book called How We Decide. And I thought this was really interesting and really useful. At the time, I was a lodging director and event sales manager for the resort that I worked at in Washington State. And I was waiting to head off on the ferry and I was just walking around a bookstore that was near the ferry. And I saw this one and I thought, you know what? I could get into this. And over the past dozen years, I've read dozens, scores of books on behavioral science topics. And I even enrolled in a program for applied behavioral economics at Texas A&M. I get asked all the time with all the reading that I've done and all the learning that I've put underneath me in the behavioral sciences, what are my favorite books and what are the ones I would recommend to wedding pros? Well, my number one go-to is always the same, Influence by Robert Cialdini. Cialdini is the godfather of persuasion, and I've learned more from him than any other author over the past decade. That book, Influence, was initially written as a warning for consumers. That's what's so funny about the whole thing is that Cialdini was tired of seeing his friends and hearing about people getting swindled by con men or salesmen or marketers. And so he decided he was going to use his understanding of psychology to dig into how people were getting tricked, how people were making these really bad decisions. It didn't make any logical sense. And he wanted to know why. So he wrote this book in response to these things happening around him. And of course, the clever marketers got the book and were like, aha, now we know how to explain and teach what it is that we've always done instinctually. In the book, Cialdini talks about six big principles of persuasion. Here they are. Reciprocity, 
commitment and consistency, liking, authority, social proof, and scarcity. All of these are useful, and some of them are more popular and more effective than others. Most of them are pretty straightforward and easy to implement. For instance, let's look at social proof. Social proof can be used in many places throughout the buyer's journey. Here are some examples. On Instagram, in your profile, you can put where you've been published. Martha Stewart, Harper's Bazaar, Over the Moon, whatever you put down. When people see that, they go, oh, okay. There's some, there's some proof that these people are good at what they do. Another place in Instagram are highlights. Right below your profile, you can feature reviews or testimonials from other people who have used your services. That's social proof. On your website, could be in the form of as-seen-in badges, places you've been published. Those little badges that you put in a bar, that's social proof. Or testimonials. On your website, in your proposal, testimonials are a form of social proof. And there's so many other places that you can use social proof. Now, of the six principles that Cialdini talks about, though, one can be hard to implement because it can backfire, and that's scarcity. I've talked about this on the podcast before. Scarcity is so easy to make mistakes with, and you don't even know you're making a mistake. Here's one that I see quite a bit. Putting an expiration date on your proposals. Now, I look at a lot of proposals every week from clients. I do them for sales process audits. I do them as part of group coaching programs, like Social and Sway, our new mastermind. I do a ton of them on one-on-ones. And we also go through for many of our copywriting clients and write copy for proposals. And so I'm reviewing proposals that they have to see if there's a need for our copywriting services. And if you want to know why you're not booking enough clients, your proposal is the place to look, especially if you're in luxury. Because if you're selling through a planner, or you're selling to multiple decision makers, your proposal is where you're making your pitch. Now, every once in a while, I see scarcity use on the proposal when it goes out to clients. Here's how it looks. Quote expires in seven days or proposal expires in three days, whatever it is. Something about the proposal expiring. I even saw a countdown timer once on the top of a proposal. Here's another third way that scarcity is used when proposals go out. Someone else is interested in your date. I just got an inquiry from somebody. Let me know as soon as possible. Now, I get what you're trying to do here with scarcity, and it might work some of the time. Create scarcity. It's only available for a limited time. Could go away at any time. Someone else might snatch up what it is that you're interested in. You know where else I hear these kinds of messages? Car salesmen. Katie and I are shopping for a new vehicle for the family, so I'm actively reaching out to dealerships every week. And I hear these kinds of statements from car salesmen all the time. Here's a text that I got from one yesterday. Quote, I will verify availability for your test drive in time because there might be other customers coming in, but I'll set the appointment and I'll confirm with you in the morning. This is a classic sales tactic. And the fact that it comes from a car salesman easily tips it off as being salesy. But trust me, if you use this kind of language with your clients on the regular, especially when there really isn't anybody inquiring, it's going to come off as salesy. These approaches may work some of the time, but more often than not, it does nothing. 
and it'll often backfire on you. Why does this one backfire? You use scarcity with an offer that expires in seven days. Okay, let's just say that's what you do. But what happens if you're the first person to submit the proposal and the couple takes more than a week to get back from other people that they're considering? So it could take two weeks or three weeks. What do they do with your now expired proposal? They want to compare apples to apples to apples, but it says right there very clearly at the top or the bottom, proposal expires in seven days. Do they reach out to you to see if it's still good, if it's still valid? And if they do, do they expect it'll go up in price? Or will they have to go through more work with you to get an updated proposal? It just becomes hard. Now, this wouldn't be such an issue if the average time between inquiry to booking was less than a week. But my research, after looking at thousands of data points over the years with clients and my own work, is that the average couple takes somewhere between two and three, maybe even four weeks to make a decision between inquiry to booking. Instead of using scarcity to get couples to look at a proposal and work towards a decision, I'd strongly recommend using another one of Cialdini's principles, commitment and consistency. Get the couple to pre-commit to a date to review the proposal with you, and hopefully you'll get a yes. So that's just one way that a sales tactic can backfire on you. What are some other ways that you're doing it and don't even know it? Here's a second one. Pitching your services on a discovery call. Discovery calls are a super important part of the sales process. It's where you connect with the client. It's where you find out important info like emotional needs, behind the scenes, decision makers who are involved in the process, how soon they're going to make the decision. It's also where you help them discover what they want and need, not just their functional needs, but their emotional needs. And if you do it right, it's a lot to go over in one call. Now, some of you are trying to sell not just discover on this first call. You're pitching your services. Maybe you're going over specific packages from your pricing guide that you had already sent out. Or you're bringing up a share screen and you're making them sit through a presentation of your pricing guide. You guys, that's gross. It's, it's even more salesy than the message that I received from that car salesman yesterday. Not only is it too much too fast, but it also creates a feeling of reactance. Psychological reactance is a real thing. It happens when humans feel like they have their options taken away from them, their freedoms limited, control removed. And so what ends up happening is that people get aggressive and they fight back to that person who's trying to take the control from them, or they throw up a wall, a defensive posture, and they put up that armor and they let nothing through. They're not even listening to you. So don't do that. Don't create reactance. Don't come off as salesy. Don't force people to sit through a live presentation of you selling your services. Don't get your buyer in a negative state where they're acting defensively or aggressively. Here's a third sales tactic that I see backfire. Pre-qualifying clients so much that it turns into over-qualifying. I get it. Wedding pros are busy. You guys have a ton of stuff going on, not just with work, but also with your regular life. And so you're going to try and save as much time as you can in every area of your business, including sales. So what do you do? You weed out couples who aren't qualified. You intentionally set really high barriers for them to get over before you're going to spend time with them. Here are some ways that you do that. Long contact forms that are hard to fill out. 
questionnaires before you do a discovery call, talking about budget early and often, including on the contact form, posting packages on your website or sending out a PDF pricing guide with all of your specific pricing. All of these are tactics you can use to pre-qualify clients, but they often walk on the fine line of over-qualifying. Why? Because couples don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. They haven't done this before. And two of the things that you're trying to qualify them on, portfolio and price, those things are hard to articulate. They're hard to know for sure. And because they've never done this, they don't know. They don't know how to talk about the style or vision or vibe that they want for their wedding. They don't know how much money they need to spend versus how much they want to spend. And I want to be really clear. There's a big distinction. When you ask somebody, how much do you want to spend and how much are you prepared to spend or how much do you think you're going to need to spend? Those can be very wildly different numbers. So part of your job as a salesperson for your company is to help them discover what their style is and how much they need to spend. That's part of what you're doing on a discovery call. You're helping them discover those things. But one of the challenges in the education space for wedding pros is that a lot, maybe even most of the advice that people get out there is coming from part-time educators who are full-time pros. And what they're doing is they're teaching others, you in the industry, the message that they're using in their businesses right now. They're teaching you what they're doing. And here's the thing. Many of these pros are wildly successful. They have huge demand on their services and they charge high prices for what they do. So when you ask them how they set up their sales process, they're telling you how they do it for their business right now. Most of them don't talk about what they did when they were in your position, not as successful or with your current audience and market. So unless you have massive demand and only want a handful of spots filled, it's hard to get the same results that you want for your business using their techniques. So be careful not to overqualify clients if you aren't inundated with inquiries or if you only need to book a handful of events per year. A simple rule of thumb, this is so easy to use, is to attract four times as many inquiries as dates you need to book. Attract four times as many inquiries as dates you need to book. So if you want to book, say, 15 clients, you need 60 inquiries. 20 clients, 80 inquiries. 25 clients, 100 inquiries. If you're not getting enough inquiries or bookings, it's very likely that you're overqualifying clients during the early stages of the buyer's journey. Go back to long contact form, questionnaires before you do a discovery call, talking about budget as early as often as possible, posting packages on your website, sending over a detailed pricing guide in the form of a PDF, or any other things that you might hear others are doing at really successful levels to weed out people who are less than ideal. That's great for them. We have one client who wants to book six events a year and he gets 600 inquiries a year. That means he's actively seeking out 594 no's. And it's important to know that that's what he's trying to do. So when he gives advice or he shares what it is that he's doing, I do these things with my contact form, with my questionnaire, with my inquiry response. He's doing it because he's trying to get 594 no's. Now, that's an extreme example, and you may not be at that level, 
But unless you are actively trying to get no's, you have to be very, very careful on how much you are pre-qualifying because it may be over-qualifying. Here's a fourth sales tactic that I see quite a bit that backfires, and that is confusing elusive with exclusive. Elusive with exclusive. Let's go back to that scarcity principle and let's talk about why it works. At least one of the reasons why it works. Things that are rare and hard to find are often seen as more desirable, more valuable, because people are willing to pay more for things that are rare and desirable. So the logic goes, if you can make your products and services hard to find, you can build desire and charge more. And this might work some of the time, some of the time, but not always. Sometimes hard to find is exactly that, hard to find. And when you make couples work too hard, they end up taking the easier route. That's what people want to do. They want to take the easiest route, 99 times out of 100. And so if you make it too hard and they end up taking the easier route, they're going to end up at the doorstep of your competition. Let's use a restaurant analogy here. You guys have all seen this, I'm sure. It's the restaurant that doesn't have a sign on the door. You know, it's down this dark alley or somewhere in this hidden part of town, but they only allow 10 people to dine at once. And they charge $100 per person. And it's this really sought after place for the people who know. Another one is a restaurant that has a line wrapping around the block. It's in the most popular part of town. And everybody who drives by it sees this line wrapping around the block. So one of these restaurants is playing on elusiveness. That's the one with no sign on the door. They're elusive. It's the, if you know, you know motto. That's been real popular over the last 12, 18 months. If you know, you know. And that often works on the upper end of luxury. Like the one percenters, the five percenters. The people who want to be the first to get into a place. But for mass luxury, that's $100,000, $150,000 budgets. Or anything under that, premium, mid-market, budget, elusive is not as appealing as exclusive. Elusive is not as appealing as exclusive. So let's go to that second restaurant because it creates a positive spin on scarcity, something that turns it into a, it's hard to get because tons of others are after it too. It's really popular. And that's more of social proof at play than scarcity, although it is a form of scarcity. It's going to be hard to get because so many people are after it. My recommendation is to create the perception of high demand rather than making it harder to find ways to know about or book your services. Here's a fifth tactic that I see backfire, automating templated inquiry responses. Look, I get it. We all want to save time at work, especially if we're trying to do it all. So we buy into the work smarter, not harder mantra in as many ways as possible. And it's really easy to do that too when you have all of these tech companies that are out there saying how they're going to automate and streamline your workflows. But at what cost? What do we trade out in effectiveness when we focus on efficiency? Automating the inquiry response solves one problem, time, but it ends up creating others. You don't get as many bookings. Wedding services are luxuries for your couples. Period. End of story. Nobody needs what you do to survive. And the more they spend, the more they expect because it's even that much more of a luxury. 
Simply getting the service or product that you offer on the big day is not what they want. They want to get the most from everything that you're doing for them. Look at the difference between getting clothes at Target versus getting it at Nordstrom. Functionally, they meet all of the same needs. And when you think about the Target experience, it's great. You walk in, you know where the stuff is, you go to the back, all those things are there, nobody bothers you, you can get everything you need in one spot, you can even go to the self-checkout line, don't even have to deal with the cashiers. Check, 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 get all your stuff, throw it in bags, walk out, get in your car and drive home. Now, think about the Nordstrom experience. Katie and I love Nordstrom. I go there and just shop just for the sake of shopping because it's fun. I like to see how they treat their clients because the Nordstrom experience is notoriously good. I read the book on the Nordstrom experience. It's amazing. People feel like they're kings or queens when they walk in there. And there's a price difference because of that. Sure, the quality of the product is different, but is it that different? It's the experience in part that you're paying for. That's an intangible. One of the ways to look at this is that if you can go to the off-price store for Nordstrom, Nordstrom Rack, they still have super high-quality goods. They're not as on-trend, but they're not target-trend. But think about the experience that you get at the Nordstrom Rack compared to the department store, to the regular store. Same products, different experience, and therefore, vastly different prices. If you want to charge more for your services, you have got to personalize the experience for your clients, and that starts the moment that they land on your website and the moment that they hit your inbox. I want to end this episode with the sixth tactic that I see, and it's this little one, but I think it's actually more impactful than you might imagine, and that's response times on out-of-office replies or inquiry responses. I read this study a couple years ago. I think the guy was at MIT and then he moved to Harvard or he was at Harvard and moved to MIT. I can't remember. But he did a study where he looked at response times. And in there, he found that if you respond within five minutes of getting a new inquiry versus 30 minutes, you are 900%, nine times more likely to book the person who inquired. Five minutes versus 30%, 30 minutes. Now, if that's the case, what do you think happens when you wait 24 to 72 hours? And that's what I see a lot of people say on the bottom of their email signatures or on their inquiry responses. I'll get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. Or I'm currently dealing with a wedding. I respond to wedding inquiries on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. The same study shows that you have a very, very little chance compared to the person who responds the fastest. In fact, the best thing that you can do to increase your chances of booking an inquiry is to be the first person to respond. Period. End of story. The best thing you can do to increase your chances of booking an inquiry is to be the first person to respond. If you're not getting back to couples in an hour or two of them inquiring, stop listening to my podcast. Not just this episode, but like the entire podcast, because none of the things that I'm recommending are nearly as important as you getting back to your inquiries faster. Seriously, it's that important. If you're currently putting up a notification for inquiries or email recipients that mention the 24, 48, or 72-hour response time, you are losing clients. Lots of them. They're writing you off before you even get back to them. Remember, the faster you get back to people, the more they like you. 
And as Cialgina reminds us in the book Influence, it's one of those six big principles of influence. Places that I typically see, quote, we respond to emails or inquiries after a certain number of hours after submitting the inquiry, like on the, the success pop-up at the bottom of email signatures. I see it all the time on website contact pages. Please inquire by filling out the form below. We'll get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. If you haven't, please email the following. I mean, that's a nail in the coffin for the deal before it ever even gets started. I also see it on out-of-office responses. Please bear with us while we are busy. We'll get back to you within 72 hours. We're currently taking care of current clients. Some of the, these tactics, they might work some of the time. I want to be really clear about that. They may work some of the time. I've even used them some of the time. But sales is a numbers game. You do the things you need to increase the likelihood of booking a client most of the time. Not some of the time, most of the time. You want to put the odds in your favor. Knowing this, don't make it too hard for couples to book your services. And don't expect higher conversion rates to emerge from making it convenient for you to save time in the sales process. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 